0: If you're note takers, all these notes are in the app. If you have our app, all that stuff's in there. But I just want to give you a starting point today, kind of a main idea, if you will. Repentance ushers in grace. So repentance is the turning from anything opposed to God's best plan for us and running from it. Repentance ushers grace into our lives and restores our soul. No true Christian faith exists apart from ongoing repentance. Let me qualify that last line. No true Christian faith. Can you back up one? No true Christian faith exists apart from ongoing repentance. A lot of times you'll go to church and you'll hear the gospel proclaimed. You'll hear that Jesus lived and died and rose again. He did this to forgive you of your sin. That if you place your trust in Jesus Christ, that you will go to heaven, that your sins will be forgiven, that you will be redeemed, that God will fill you with his spirit. All those things are true. And many will lead that by saying, repent repent and believe or repent and say this prayer, repent and be baptized. Even Peter says that in Acts 2. But what we may lose sight of is that Christianity, true faith, cannot exist apart from ongoing repentance. That all of us must be perpetually repenting of things, turning from things that are not God's best for us. Right, repentance is an old military term. The the English word repentance is an old military term where a general overlooking or a commander overlooking a battle from a hill would see that his armies were losing and he would yell the words, repent. And what repent meant was to turn 180 degrees and run for your life. And that's how we should see sin in our lives. That the ongoing perpetual repentance call is for for God to speak to us and reveal where we are living in a way that is not God's best for us. That is not God's plan for us. That is not God's life for us. And that we should always be turning and running from sin. So we're going to back up Isaiah 15, if you're following along. I'm going to start in verse 1. We'll cover Isaiah 15 and 16 today. It says, an oracle concerning Moab. Because Ar of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. Because Kir of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. So Moab is this nation and it's been the adversaries of the people of God. But I want to give you a little background to it. If you're familiar with the Bible, maybe the story of Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah, Lot's daughters, maybe that's a familiar story to you. This story takes place in Genesis 19 and after Sodom and Gomorrah are destroyed, Lot, who is rescued from destruction and his daughters leave and they flee The destruction of those two cities. And as they get out into a desert wilderness place where they are alone, the two daughters of Lot decide that that God has abandoned them, that God will not provide for them, and they don't know how to exist. So it's them and their father, and so they get their father drunk. True story. So they get their father drunk, and one at a time they go in and sleep with him in order to get pregnant so that they can have children by their dad. Okay. That's a great visual for a Sunday morning, right? That is is the way we want to start church. Right. The firstborn son from this incestuous relationship of Lot's oldest daughter is a boy named Moab. Moab becomes the people Moab generations later. But what began in a lack of obedience and a lack of trust in God is perpetuated in a disbelief that God will provide. That is followed by sin after sin after sin that culminates in generations of people who don't follow God. So a people who at one time followed God, who lost their way and perpetually over time ignored their lives being contrary to God. This is where they end up. Moab becomes a people that are the adversaries of the people of God. And so again, just as kind of a starting point, here's a note for you: unrepentant lives end in despair. When Lot and his daughters, or us today, live in unchecked sin, it causes them to quit trusting in God, and ultimately their rejection of him ending in devastation and despair. As Lot and his daughters live in Sodom and Gomorrah and become a part of the nations, become a part of those cities, they live like them, and they live among them, and they don't live distinct from them. And so they're they're enculturated in that season. And because of that, even though God is faithful and saves them, as they leave, they don't trust in God. Because even though God has saved them, they haven't turned in their hearts and turned towards God. And so what we see is generations later, a people that are not only opposed to God's people, but opposed to God completely. So verse one, an oracle concerning Moab, because our of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. Because Kir of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. So what we're saying here, Isaiah is proclaiming ahead of time. We'll figure this out that this is three years before it happens. We'll see that at the end of 16. But what Isaiah is saying is, listen, Moab is about to be destroyed for its unrepentant, from its its unrepentant, and unturning from the things that God has called them not to be and not to do. And so it says here, these major cities in Moab will be undone in one night, and this will fall all of Moab. Verse 2, it says, he has gone up to the temple and to Dabon, to the high places to weep over Nebo and over Medeva, Moab wails. On every head is baldness and every beard is shorn. In the streets they wear sackcloth, and on the housetops and in the squares, everyone wails and melts in tears. Heshbon and Elea cry out. Their voice is heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore, the armed men of Moab cry aloud, his soul trembles. So this is God through the man, through the prophet Isaiah proclaiming over the people of Moab, God will destroy you for not returning. And he says, he starts to, he starts to explain the lament and the mourning that they will endure. It says, on every head is baldness and every beard is shorn. In the streets, they wear sackcloth. And so, in, a, in, a, in, a, in this culture, almost three millennia ago, what we see is people would put on sackcloth or they would put on this mourning garb, this clothing that they would mourn in, and they would shave their heads and cut their beards, these symbols of prominence in their culture, and they would do this in a way of mourning. And they say that Moab will be so undone overnight as these massive cities fall in a single evening. As this is done, the entire people will wail. The entire people will mourn. The men will be known for their image of mourning as they will be so deeply affected by this. So it says, verse five, my heart cries out. This is Isaiah speaking. My heart cries out for Moab. Her fugitives flee to Zoar, to Eglath, Shaliah, for the ascent of Luhith. They go up weeping and on the road to Horonim. They raise a cry of destruction. So here's Isaiah's heart. So as God is speaking through Isaiah, God is telling Isaiah, here's what's going to take place. Moab will be destroyed. Its people will mourn. It says when they run up in the hills to worship, no one will hear them. They actually run back to their false gods to worship and no one's listening. And God says, but I will destroy them. They will mourn. They will weep. They will wail. They will ache. And in the midst of this, we're going to see some commentary from Isaiah, the man of God, who has been given this message to proclaim to this people. And what he says is, my heart cries out for Moab. Isaiah's heart breaks for this unrepentant, evil and wicked people. Now understand, these people are the enemies of Isaiah's people. But at this moment, as God is proclaiming this over these people, he's proclaiming this destruction Isaiah is a godly enough man to withdraw from that and just say, okay, my heart cries out for the people of Moab. So we should have hearts for broken people. Here's a note for you. Just as Isaiah weeps for Moab, even though they have been enemies of God and Judah, we too should weep and long for those who are far from God, that they might be restored. We should have hearts for people no matter how much they oppose us. That we should be the ones that see from the outside and know that sin left unchecked leads to this in everyone. That this is a common theme in humanity. That when we allow ourselves to be pulled so far away from God, we either resent God or reject God or continue in hardness of heart. And that we should see the spiritual condition on humanity. We should be able to look from the outside and say, you know, if it wasn't for the grace of God, that'd be me. Right? And, and, and when it's not by the grace of God, when I leave my own sin unchecked, that's me. That we should be able to remove ourselves from the strife and from the quarreling, from the pain from the inside, and step out. And as God destroys or proclaims destruction, we should have a heart for people who need to be restored. Yes. That we should be a heart, we should have a heart for people that need to be redeemed. Yep. Verse 6, the waters of Nimrim are in desolation. The grass is withered. The vegetation fails. The greenery is no more. Therefore, the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they carry away over the brook of the willows. I was reading one commentary on this and it gave a very vivid image and I looked on, on the internet and I couldn't find this image. I really, I really wanted to show this today, but I believe I've seen it, but the, the author painted such a, a, a very clear picture that it felt like even if I haven't seen it, like I could see this picture. And it was, it was talking about World War II refugees fleeing from Hitler. And as they were, there was a French woman who was an older woman, um, let's say over 60, and she is pushing a baby carriage with no baby in it. But inside this baby carriage is a painting, a lamp, and like an evening dress. And she got this image of this older woman, no child, no nothing, and these are her last three belongings this painting must be of some value, and I don't know this dress. I imagine a lot of women in a wedding dress. That's what came to mind. And the lamp, I have no idea what to do with the lamp, right? They have nowhere to plug in the lamp, yet she's carrying a lamp. And I thought of just pictures that we've seen of Syrian refugees and pictures we've seen of other people. Um, my wife and I were privileged to serve at Ground Zero and just watch as, as devastation hit people and watch as people have lost things and what people do in those moments. And the things that they cling to, like if you've ever heard of someone or maybe you've been that person who have lost uh, your belongings to a home fire, how many people have heard of women grabbing photo albums? Right, how many of you, that's one of the first things you think of? Right, I think that's uh, more of a pronounced women attribute than it is for men. But there's this, this is what matters. These are my memories. These are the things that remind me of a time that I don't wanna ever forget. And that's this image I got of this World War II refugee pushing a stroller with a painting, a lamp, and a dress. That's the image portrayed for Moab. That they will be so destroyed that everything they once had is lost. Verse eight, it says, "'For a cry has gone around the land of Moab, "'and her wailing reaches to Eglam. "'Her wailing reaches to Beer Elim. "'For the waters of Divan are full of blood. "'I will bring blood, I will bring upon Divan "'even more a lion for those of Moab "'who escape for a remnant of the land.'" The idea here is that war will be so profound, that war will be so deep, that the rivers will flow with blood that so many will lose their lives to this, that a lion will even be there to catch the ones that escape. That no one, no one will not be affected by this. The land will flow with blood. Isaiah 16, verse one, says, send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion. So here it kind of pivots. And what it says is, Moab will then send tribute to Judah, He will send tribute to the people of God, the very people that Moab has been opposed to. Forgive me, I have missed the last two weeks for being sick, and I'm trying not to cough all over the place. So bear with me as you guys all cough. Thanks. Good looking out. (laughs) That didn't help me a bit, just for the record. All right. And you guys are in the spit zone, I think. So okay, good. So after years of being enemies and adversaries of the people of God, here's what happens. They will be so destroyed that they will reach out to their own enemies for help, that they will reach out to their enemies, the people that they have, that they have been against for generations. They will reach out and help. Just imagine if you have someone in life, and, and we shouldn't, as, as Christians, we really shouldn't, but imagine that we had enemies in life. Now, maybe, maybe an easier way to say this is imagine some of our national enemies. Imagine some of the people that want us dead the most. And imagine that we were in such a bad place that we were willing to reach out to them to ask for comfort, to ask for aid. Like, all right, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, we really need help right now. Or, you know, I mean, like, it's that, right? These have been their mortal enemies, their neighboring enemies, the people that they have been opposed to. And things get so bad, they even reach out there. Now, here's the difference, that they are going to reach out to the people who ought to be the people of God, right? These should be the people that represent God best. And I'm not saying they do, because the first 12 chapters of this book is God judging them for not representing him well. Well, now we've moved into the people that have opposed them and they don't get away with it either, right? And, and we've, we've seen Babylon and now Moab and we've watched as God has said, listen, even though they're far from me, I will not let their enemies torment them anymore. But these should be the people that are the people of God. So they send a gift to Judah, their enemy seeking refuge. Now, let me ask you this. How does the story change if the people of God are seeking the redemption of the Moabites. How is that different than these are my enemies and I wanna see God judge them? Right, do you see the contrast it? Most of the people probably wanna see Moab utterly destroyed because they have been a plague to Israel and Judah for generation upon generation upon generation. But what if they're more like Isaiah? What if they're weeping over the destruction of Moab? What if they're praying for the restoration of these people, though they're their enemies? How could the story be different under those two circumstances? So the call of the church. Here's a place where we can find ourselves. The church is called to care enough for people who are broken into despair that in their desert moment or in their deepest despair, we provide for them a way out. Isaiah is longing for Moab to be redeemed just as we need to long for the lost to be found. The church ought to be a place where those who oppose God the most ought to be desired to be redeemed. That we should be the ones that are praying for the people that are the most broken, the most adversarial, And, and, and that should flow from a place of us knowing we were the ones that were adversarial to God. Right? And you don't have to have some crazy story like mine that is so far from normal or far from God or whatever to know that in our hearts, apart from the grace of God, we're all far from God. And so that should put us, that should posture us in a place of humility rather than superiority. That should put us in a place that allows us to pray for those who oppose God the loudest, the most vehemently the people groups that are against us, the people that really that just need the grace of Jesus. The call of the church ought to be that we should be those people. We should be the ones desiring for the lost to be found, for the broken to be healed, for the, for the antagonist towards God to become one who is loved by God. Verse two, like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of Arnon. Listen to this, give counsel, grant justice, make, shade, make your shade like night at the height of noon. Shelter the outcast, do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and the destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land. There's a call for God's people to give refuge to others. Now Israel is different, Judah is different, they're a nation, they are. Uh, they border some of the folks that are going to be destroyed here. It's different than our modern day dialogue about immigration or anything else. But it has, it absolutely has a call to people of faith to desire to engage refugees. It absolutely calls us to desire to care for people that are in need. Yes, there's a large conversation going on today in our nation, and it's different. It's different than this, but there, I will say this, that the folks that are most often for national defense should, should really read God's heart for the marginalized. Is that fair? Those that love the refugee, they have their thing, that's great, but those who have not embraced this on the side of the conservative where I land, on the side where I am politically or, or, or just sociologically, God repeatedly and throughout Isaiah calls us to look for the refugee, calls us to seek justice for the people that are oppressed. And and I'll be honest, in the conservative church, we're really bad at this. Fair? And I get that in this room, we are incredibly ideologically diverse, that we have everything that represents all spectrums of politics and ideology and everything else. This should surpass that that people in need and how we figure out who they are, where they come from, that's another conversation. That's not for today. But what we miss is that there are broken people in the world who need refuge. And Isaiah has a repeated call to care for people, to love the people that are the most oppressed, the most in need. He says, give counsel, verse three, grant justice, make your shade, like the night at the height of noon. He's saying, you should cover over people as they are under the blazing sun. You should be the shade provided for them. Shelter the outcast; Do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. And then when the oppressor is no more and the destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land. That we as a, God, as a people of God, that we should be They're looking to help the hurting. A place of refuge. Here's a note for you. God's people are to be a place of refuge for those in need. This is an area that we as a church may need to repent. Are we a place of safety and shelter for the outcast and the far from God? Let me broaden this out. Let me just not, let me take it out of a political dialogue or out of people, nationality, things like that. Let me just broaden this out. What about the people that most don't fit in in the church? What about people whose lifestyles don't look like our lifestyle? What about the people who champion things that we stand against? Whether that be the LGBT community, whether that be pro-abortion folks, whether it be anybody who stands against things that that God has said isn't his best for humanity. What if, what if they walk through the door? Are we a place of refuge for them? Are we a place that champions loving them, no matter how adamantly they oppose us? That's what God is calling us to do. And this is an area that the church deeply needs repentance. In the places where people look the most unlike us, we need to learn to love them the best. We need to be the grace bearers, those that show God's love. That doesn't mean that we condescend to their lifestyle. That doesn't mean that we, that we compromise our beliefs. That doesn't mean that we change the gospel. That doesn't mean that we ignore the Bible. It just means that we show the same grace that God showed us when we were so opposed to God. Yeah. Thank you, Lord. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah? For being half sick, man, I could get into this. All right, so there we go. <laughs> Verse 5, then, so when all this takes place, when the church does what it's called to do, when God's people reach out and seek to redeem and restore people, verse 5 says, then, then a throne will be established in steadfast love. And on it will sit faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and swift to do righteousness. This verse in Isaiah preaches Jesus clearly that when we do this, Jesus is proclaimed, that when we love the lost, the sacrifice of Christ is proclaimed. See, we love to lead with the sin of other people. Oh, you're doing, this is what keeps you from Jesus, or this is what keeps you from it. We don't, I hope we don't love that, but the church is often found doing that. Is that fair? That the church and culture is often looking and pointing outside of itself to say what's wrong with the world, never very introspective of all the flaws inside, but quick to judge everyone else. Fair statement? But when we become a people who seek refuge and grace, when we become a people, then Jesus is proclaimed the most loudly. When I was addicted and imprisoned, literally when I was violent and ugly, when I was all the things that I was before Jesus, that's when Jesus showed me grace. It wasn't when I renounced everything. It wasn't when I gave it all. In fact, it wasn't until I came to faith that God was able to take that from me. I was trapped, imprisoned literally, but imprisoned by my life too. That's where Jesus showed me grace. That's where God meets us. That's where we need to meet other people, Amen. that we might be the grace of God towards others. That Jesus lived and died and rose again, yes, that's the gospel, but that he did it for those who are far from God is the point. Amen. And then when people that their most needy and weakest and most in pain, most desperate, that we need to be the people that can be there. Jesus says this in Matthew 11. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Our approach to people outside is so often this you've got to change this and do this and fix this. You've got to stop being this. You've got to start being this. You've got to do all these things. And we put these gigantic yokes of burden on people that they might meet Jesus and no one can do that. It's Jesus that changes people, not us. It's grace that changes people, not rules. That Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come to me, come to me broken, come to me all jacked up. Come to me, you're most sinful and opposing me and I will give you rest. I will show you grace. Verse 6, it says, We have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is, of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence. In his idle boasting, he is not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail, mourn, utterly stricken for the raising cakes of Kir Haresheth. What is the thing that keeps us and is preventing Moab from returning to God? It's pride. Pride keeps us from grace. Here's how I wrote this down. Terry, can you put that up? In our pride, we continue in sin, small or great, refusing to allow the grace of God to restore us. Whether it is pride preventing us from saving faith or pride preventing us from ongoing repentance of sin, pride holds back the grace of God in our lives. Pride is the thing that says, I don't need to change that. Or pride is the thing that says, I can change this on my own. Or pride is the thing that says, I don't need to surrender to God. That's where Moab is. And if we're honest, that's where we all get to be. That's where we all find ourselves in pride, saying, no, we're good. We've got this. We've got this all handled. I can do what I want. God doesn't know what he's talking about in this area of my life. Yeah, God created me. Yeah, God created everything. Yeah, God knows more than I do. But I got this. Right? I mean, that's what I've heard people do. I would never do that, right? We always just think we know better than God in this instance. And that's pride and that's sin. And unchecked sin causes us to drift. And unchecked sin while drifting causes us to quit trusting, to quit believing, and to get hard-hearted and stiff-necked. It's that unchecked sin in our lives that causes us to be further and further and further from God. We've heard the pride of Moab. Verse 8, For the fields of Heshbon languish and the vine of Sidma, The lords of the nations have struck down its branches, which reached to Jezir and strayed in the desert. Its shoots spread abroad and passed over the sea. Therefore I will weep with the weeping of Jazar from the vine of Sibma. I drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Eleah, over your summer fruit and your harvest, the shout has ceased. Here's what Isaiah is saying. I, I, am, I am seeing, and you can hear the languishing and the heartache of Isaiah. But here's what he's saying. Even the things that are good now in Moab, As God is calling them to return, as God is calling them towards judgment, saying, listen, return or I'll judge you. And at this point, Moab's not going to return. And God is just saying, I'm going to judge Moab. I'm going to destroy Moab. But even in the midst of this, God is taking away the things that are going right in Moab at that time. As they, wait the ju- as they wait this judgment, God is removing the goodness from among them. He's removing the produce of their harvest. He is taking away what is good in their life, causing them, desiring them to turn and to see him. And Isaiah looks from outside and says, you're losing even the things that are going right, right now. Because you've refused to see God. And his heart breaks for the people. I weep with the weeping of Jazir. I drench you with my tears. Over your summer fruit and your harvest, the shout has ceased. You've lost even what was going right. I remember when 9-11 hit. We mentioned, I mentioned uh, Ground Zero earlier. I remember when 9-11 hit. We all do. If you're old enough, we all Remember? And I was a part of a leadership in a really large church in Orange County, and we began to gather people to pray. And I remember sitting in this large room. We didn't have a building. We were meeting at a, at a rented facility. I remember sitting in this large room, probably 40 of us in this room. We broke into groups to pray. It was a large church. There was a lot of people that gathered. And as you know, after 9-11, many people came to church. People didn't often go to church, flooded churches. Sadly, within 30 days, the numbers were back down to kind of normal. But it was right after that, it was in the next few days and we're gathering together and I've got this one group of people and we're praying and inside of it is a friend of mine's daughter who at the time I think she was 12 or 13, I think she was 13. So junior high uh, student, young girl, great, just amazing follower of Jesus at, at her age. She was just amazing, her parents were awesome. And we were going around, we were praying for our nation, we were praying for New York, clearly, we were praying for first responders. And as it's going around and just people are praying as they feel led, this young girl starts to pray, and I remember Haley's prayer, and I remember she prayed for the terrorists. I remember she prayed for those who did the attack, for those who masterminded the attack against our nation. And I know inside of me, there was this piece of me that just wasn't ready to pray for them. I might have some prayers I'd like to say about them, right? <laughs> but she was praying for their repentance. Now, what's the best thing that could have happened? They could have repented. Right? That, that, how would that have reshaped our geopolitical problems over the last couple decades almost now? Yeah. Out of the mouths of this young child came a prayer of brokenheartedness for wicked and sinful people. Verse 10, listen to what God says here. He says, and joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful land. And in the vineyards, no songs are sung, no cheers are raised, no treader treads out wine in the presses. I have put an end to shouting. And again, God is saying, I am removing even the common grace that I show to everyone from you right now. Even the good things, the sun rises and sets on the just and the unjust alike, says David, the psalmist. Right, common grace is the fact that the sun rises on everyone, not just the godly. Common grace is that they can grow food and they can have crops and they can raise animals and God says, I'm even gonna stop that from happening right now. Lacking repentance destroys life. Yep. As Moab continued in unrepentance, they saw destruction in the rest of their lives until their fields no longer produced and their land was desolate. Not repenting of sin causes death in all areas of our life. Here's what I'm saying by this. If there is unrepentance of sin in one area, it will affect every part of your life if left unchecked. You have unrepentance over here in your workplace. It will eventually drift into your marriage. It will drift into your family. It will drift into all of your relationship with God. Unchecked sin will work its way into every inch of your life. Verse 11, therefore my inner parts moan like a liar from Moab. My inmost self for care harasseth, And when Moab presents himself and when he wears himself in the high place, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. God's word through Isaiah is, it's not gonna go well for Moab. Moab is unrepentant. Moab is refusing to change. Listen to this, verse 13. This is the word that the Lord spoke concerning Moab in the past, but now the Lord has spoken, saying in three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt, in spite of all his great multitude, and those who remain will be very few and feeble. Here's what Isaiah gets. Here's what the people in Judah and Israel get. Here's what is told to them. You have a three-year warning. It says, in three years, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt, and those who remain will be very few and feeble." So let me just pivot for a second. What if we got a three-year warning? What if we were told, hey, in three years, the people that you know and love the most that don't know Jesus, that's the end of their life. What if we were told, hey, in three years, it's the end of you. How would we pursue our faith differently? How would we pursue caring for those that we know, that we care about, that we love, who don't know Jesus yet? How might we do this, Isaiah, after this great, this powerful proclamation and prophecy of destruction where Isaiah is deeply wrecked inside of himself for a people that are far from God and and, and really oppose God's people at every level. But as God is taking away things from them in that very moment, God tells Isaiah, now this is what I've decreed, but it's gonna happen in three years, Isaiah. And I think what God does in this moment is he allows that broken, weeping, wailing heart of Isaiah's. He allows it three years that Isaiah can at least go and tell them and proclaim. this. This is a message that God has given Isaiah to proclaim to the people of Moab, that they might hear this and hear the opportunity that God has given them, that they would not have to face destruction that they could know the love and the generosity and the care and the grace of a God who deeply desires them. And inside of this one man, Isaiah, is a heart longing to see those who are far from God brought near. Now, what is this gonna take? Really the word I just wanted to take away and using it over and over again today is repentance. That it requires repentance. I want to work through just a couple things. And so we're all in need of re- repentance. First John says this, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Let me pause there for a second. If you're sitting here and you've been walking with Jesus for decades, some of you have been walking with Jesus for longer than I've been alive. So you've been walking with Jesus 50, 60, 70, 80 years. This verse is to, to you Just like it's to you if you're sitting here and you have never taken a step towards Jesus in your life. Sin is sin, sin is pervasive. Sin doesn't go away when we come to faith. Yes, God will begin to walk us through overcoming sin in our lives, but we will never be without sin. Not a Christian in the building as, as we all act like we got it together, we don't. Let's just do that, right? We're all full of it. Like we all full of sin, full of sin. Where are you guys' at heads? <laughs> Come on, people. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, God, a liar. And him, God's word, is not in us. So if you're here today, and I don't care how long you want to walk with Jesus, I don't care how good you are, if you say you have no sin, you're saying God's lying. And if you're here and and your perception of Christianity is what mine was growing up, the Christians are hypocrites, the Christians act like they've got it all together, but they're just as broken as we are, you're dead on. Just as broken. Except... We have a savior who's making changes. And with a little humility and ongoing repentance, we can actually be different. And and maybe that different is just more transparent about how broken we really are, how in need we really are, and the comfort that we found in Christ. That's what changes. It doesn't change the fact I'm still sinful and broken. It just changes I have somewhere to go and to offload it all. We're all in need of repentance. The next one, repentance is for the lost. Isaiah says this, turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, Isaiah would say, repent, turn from your disbelief and turn to belief. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, everyone. For God says, I am God and there is no other. So if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, let me call you to the welcome arms of Jesus, to repentance towards following Jesus. Repentance for the individual. Here's Deuteronomy. I just kept this all in the Old Testament for it. It just felt like a good place to stay. You should be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. You shall walk in the way the Lord God has commanded you that you may live and that may go well with you and that you may live long in the land that you shall possess So for the individual, every individual here, lost or found, it doesn't matter. God has given us his desire. God has given us his best way to live. And it is our job to stay on that track. He will will forgive us. He will lead us. He will awaken our hearts. He will place his spirit in us. But then he calls us not to turn to the right or to the left, not to drift into unchecked sin, but to perpetually and constantly be turning back to him. And lastly, I want to close with Ezekiel fourteen repentance to the church. Therefore says, therefore say to the house of Israel, or say to the people of God, Thus says the Lord God, repent and turn away from your idols, turn away from your faces from all abominations. As a church, here's what we need to remember: we get caught up in it too. We get caught up in the political debate. We get caught up in the divide. We get caught up in the things that are comfortable for us. We get caught up in this homogeny of everybody kind of looking alike, and anybody who doesn't look like that stands outside of this, and we say, well, that's wrong, because it's easier to be in this circle than it is to figure out this one. Or people that sin differently than we sin, it's easy to write them off, and those become the idols of the church. And as a church, we need repentance too. As a collective community, we need to repent from the things that do not honor God. Whether you've never taken one step towards Jesus or you've been living with him forever, repentance is a perpetual and ongoing turning towards Jesus and running into him. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that we could gather this morning. Thank you that my voice held out, Lord. God, I thank you most of all Far above everything else, I thank you for your word. Jesus, your word is good. You are the word of God that became flesh. You have called us to you. And in this, you have called us to repentance. We always walk away. And we will always walk away. As long as we, we live in this flesh, Jesus, we will always be flawed. But you have given us the opportunity to return, to come and be found in you, And so I pray for repentance. I pray for repentance on behalf of our nation. I pray for repentance on behalf of our our church. I pray for repentance on behalf of the church in America that has drifted. I pray for us here locally. Let us return in every way to you. I pray for every individual. May we see the places where we are not following you and may we hand those to you today. No waiting, no pushing it off, no no pushing it down the road, but today may we hand it back to you. And God, I pray for those that are in here that, that may not be followers of yours at all. May they lay their pride down. May they humble themselves just like we have to. And may they come to faith. Jesus, I pray that many would proclaim your name today. And that we would do do so through humility and repentance. That we would turn from ourself and run to you. That we would turn from sin and run to you. That we would turn from the world and run to you. Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.